Well, good morning. It's good to be here today. I bring you greetings from my family. They are scattered about some, a lot of them in California with us. And some are one Kansas, uh, Montana, and then different parts of California. I do uh, thank the Lord for lighthouses, for local churches that impact not only this part of the vineyard, but have a burden to impact the world as well. Known of Countryside years and years ago, I spoke here a couple of times, and um, just from a distance through students and classes and friends uh, from our church even um, have moved here. Israel trips, a handful, and so uh, it's a blessing to be in your midst. I'm excited to bring this lesson today from one of my favorite books of the Old Testament, obviously, because of both uh, its importance and my dissertation, but this is focusing on something just part of that. I, I regard the book of Isaiah as one of those mountain peaks in the Old Testament that, like Deuteronomy, it just seems to move forward in a big way or understanding of who God is and what He intends to do both uh, not for Israel alone, but for the world. So it has significance. And, and of course, in uh, an hour or so, to be able to cover this, I, I assure you I'm not going to do all 66 chapters. I, I melt at the thought myself uh, trying to do that. That's like, what, a, a minute a chapter. I'm going to do seven passages, the ones that focus on some messianic significance, but still that alone is kind of daunting. So I'm trying to tell myself, don't talk too fast, and yet get done. So we don't want to go halfway, but it is, it is a blessing to be here. So I'm going to move slowly in some passages, faster in others along the way, so be patient with me. And if we have time at the end, I'll take some questions. So um, hold on, buckle your seat belts, and let's go ahead and zoom through some important passages. You have notes before you. Uh, I'm not going to, again, methodically go through everything in the notes, but I, I did have in there in that bold Isaiah, a huge step forward. I do think, again, as I said, it's a, a mountain peak, and God is uh, through with the prophet Isaiah giving us a better picture of a number of things, a number of truths, including the Messiah. So I, I have the before Isaiah, Isaiah 1 to 39, Isaiah 46 kind of comparison there of aspects of the Messiah where we're told, I'm going to leave that for you to think through and drop down to where I have before Isaiah. I have five passages that just kind of set the stage for what we're going to talk about today. In Genesis 3.15, in the wake of Adam and Eve's fall into sin, you have the Proto-Evangelium, it's called, uh, where the Lord pronounces not just bad news, His judgment on, on uh, the serpent and even on Adam, but in that part of that judgment, the Lord talks about he's going to raise up a, a he that will be from the seed of woman who will bruise or crush the head of Satan and will, his heel will be bruised. The point is one is mortal or final, and the other one involves pain and agony. We know that's the death of Christ. So there's a he introduced in Genesis 3 looking forward to who God will provide. And uh, from that point on, in general, I think God's people who are aware of that would have seen various big leaders pop up. And Abraham, not, not him, 
Noah, or not him. I mean, you need to have this awareness of a he that God is going to take, bring to pass, to bring resolution to mankind's sin problem. But then in thinking about Messiah, Genesis 12:1, the Lord establishes a covenant with Abraham, promised him to be a nation, a, pe- a people, and a blessing to all peoples of the world. And, and it's going to be through Abraham that he does a number of things, becomes the nation of Israel, and that is part of a big part of that in order to help them to bless all the nations of the world, all the people of the world, to provide a Messiah. That becomes increasingly more clear. Genesis 49.10, we have in Jacob's blessing, it says that to the tribe of Judah, that the scepter will not depart out of Judah. So we have progressively some narrowing that's going on. God has already done that with Abraham and then Isaac and not Ishmael and then Jacob and not Esau. But then now it's tribe of Judah. And we could do more, but uh, in 2 Samuel 7, there's a whole bunch of interesting things that God does to prepare for this. We have the books of Samuel are about God putting his man on the throne of Israel, not a perfect man. It's not about David. It's about God in the end. But we have the Davidic covenant where the Lord says that he has in mind to establish a, a kingdom ruled over by a Davidite who will rule forever. So we know this person is going to be a a ruler, a king. And then we have Psalm 72, for example. You have a number of psalms that talk about things that relate to this promised one. In Psalm 72, it's, again, a king, but it's a king that sets the pace for the nation. It's the king who's the ideal Davidic ruler. It's the king who's the barometer for the nation. And they've not seen a king like that, even though you have Hezekiah and Josiah as amazing kings in the divided monarchy. Of the eight good kings, they're the two brightest lights. They had flaws. They weren't the promised Messiah. But what we see in Psalm 72 is the introduction of the idea further defined of this ideal Davidic ruler because God will establish a kingdom on earth at the end of the tribulation. And so he's kind of paving the way for that. And that brings us to Isaiah, where the Lord, again, I, I would suggest to you, he, through the prophet Isaiah, he presents a number of important truths, and two of them are important big picture to what we're going to talk about today. And, and, and those are, on the one hand, he's dealing with the people that are characterized by rebellion. And so what Isaiah does, if you read through parts of his book, it's kind of like, ouch, some of the times, he announces judgment, covenant judgment on his rebellious covenant people. And just his little sidelight here, just remember as you think about that, those, those pronouncements of covenant judgment on God's people, that judgment is never the end of God's story for his people. He's made a promise to them in, in Genesis 12 and kind of reaffirmed in a unique way in Genesis 15 where that promise is unilateral. The when and to whom is up for grabs, but the whether or not is a done deal because it's only God who's responsible for the fulfillment. And so he wants them to realize that even though you have a pretty severe language, you have pretty catastrophic judgment that's happening here, that God has a plan for his people, even though there are times when it looks like it's off track or it looks like it's not happening in God's timetable, it's not the, the judgment is not the end of the story. He's not throwing them off the cliff turning away from them permanently. Knowing his mercy and his grace, we're going to see, even in the first three chapters we'll look at this morning, our great God has planned and promised 
to provide the promised Messiah who will bring God's amazing plan for Israel and the world to pass the next steps in this plan. And even in these unique Old Testament circumstances we're going to look at here, some in Isaiah, I want you to be encouraged that we can see a God who's faithful. He cares for his people. He's committed to doing what's just and right. It's encouraging because in our own walks in life and the tough chapters we live through in the world around us that seems to be spinning out of control at times, God is on the throne. Politics, tragedies, persecution aren't the sum total of God's plan. And so we need to hang on to those truths that God is faithful, cares for his people, always committed to doing what is right and best. The challenge for us is his timetable is not always the same as ours. So especially in chapters 7 to 11, the Lord demonstrates how his kingdom is enduring in contrast to the frail human kingdoms of the world. So in chapters 1 to 5, you have God brings through the prophet an indictment against the children of Israel, promising judgment on them for their penchant, for their consistent dedication to living a life of covenant treachery, hypocrisy, God plus, worshiping Yahweh plus, and other issues. And then chapter 6, it's a fulcrum chapter, verses 7 to 12, I call it big K, little K, because in in those chapters we see a, a big theme is that God's kingdom will be the one that survives. God's kingdom will be the one that becomes dominant. The little K is you have these other peoples around Israel who are part of God's tool for judgment to bring them back to him, to compel them to trust in him. And so we have, even though God has covenant judgment he's going to bring against his chosen people, he has big plans for them. He will continue to accomplish amazing things in and through them. So we're going to look at these seven chapters, 7, 9, 11, 35, 42, 49, and 53. We're going to start with chapter 7, verses 1 to 17, and there are a handful of things I added that aren't in your notes probably, but Roman number one, it's God with us, near and far, and that's chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. So, as I said, just shortly before chapter 7 and chapter 5, the smoke rising from the pages section is, has been done. The, the announcement of what seems to be horribly bad news, that God's going to bring judgment on his people. But even in chapters 1 to 5, what do you have in chapters 2 and 4? You have good news. You have oracles that present the, the hope of Gentile streaming design. You have the hope of a, a branch, a promised one, who's going to bring his plan to pass. And so what God sets before his people is a moment of decision for Ahaz and for his people, which has always been the challenge here throughout Israel's history and even in our lives is, will we believe that the one and only true God is who he says he is and is worthy of our trust and obedience, that we can put confidence in him to bring his plan to pass. For salvation, we repent and trust For life, we repent and trust. So when when God was indicting God's people in chapters 1 to 5 and other places in Isaiah, the issue, the primary issue wasn't 
disobeying this or that law. It was a lack of a dependent relationship on the Lord. Their pursuit of alliances with other nations to help beef up their security, their worshiping of another god besides Yahweh was their attempt to kind of fill in the gaps, to kind of have other options, to make sure they're covering their options around them. And God is wanting from them and from us that we would be able to live lives dependent on Him, realizing that we don't have the answers. All right, so will you believe is the first part of that chapter. And again, we're, we're learning things about what God values and what God is going to accomplish as we see some of the, the, the good things and some of the challenging things. So will you believe, verses 1 to 9. The house of David is threatened in verses 1 and 2. Now it came about in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, the king of Aram, or Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remali, the king of Israel, also called Ephraim, went up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but they could not conquer it. So Israel under Pekah and Syria under Retzin had gathered their forces together, had come against Judah in the south and wanted to wipe the, well, destroy the leadership and put their guy in the throne and be in, be in control. Well, phase one didn't work. They, they put a big dent in Israel's in Judah's army, but they hadn't conquered them. And, and they're camped 12 miles to the north. They hadn't even gone all the way home. We're just a day's march away. So verse 2 tells us, one was reported to the house of David. Who's that talking about? The king, Ahaz. And the reason why the prophet uses house of David here is this is not just about the loser king, Ahaz. I mean, he was not a Yahweh worshiper. He was uh, a horrible king as far as what God's standards were. So this is not ultimately about Ahaz. There's something bigger here. When it was reported to the house of David, Ahaz, the king, even the house of David refers to the dynasty of David, saying the Arameans have camped in Ephraim. Whoa, 12 miles away. I mean, they're just not far at all. And they've already done damage to Judah's army. The Arameans have camped in Ephraim. When he heard that, his heart and the hearts of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake with the wind. And they're, they're, they're terrified. Now, to, to help us understand this, I didn't have the chance or the time to put together a PowerPoint presentation with lots of good maps. So we're going to, I'm going to ask you to put your imagination caps on. I don't know how well you know the geography of Israel and Syria and all of that. So let's just think about geography around here. Let's imagine we have Judah, and I know for Texans this is going to be hard for you to do. For, for Judah, think about Oklahoma just north of you. I'm thinking of size, right? Taxes would be great to use, but Judah's not the biggest show in town. You know, the, everything's big and glorious in Texas. So we, we got to go to Oklahoma for Judah, and then just north of them is Kansas, right? Similar-sized states. And then to the left and up from them are Minnesota and Iowa. Are you with me here? Oklahoma's Judah, focus of Isaiah's prediction. Next up is Kansas. That's Israel, the northern kingdom, the northern ten tribes, about the same size. 
to the right and north is Syria, a little bigger, really powerful. Well, Kansas, in Minnesota, Iowa, Israel, and Syria bound, bound themselves together in this campaign against Judah, Oklahoma. Probably happy that Oklahoma's getting beaten up, but <laughs> no, so <laughs> we got to set some of that aside, right? And then Assyria is going to be in the, in the picture too, and they're like the northeastern section of the United States, powerful, influential, big, just not a, not a smaller regional power, but a, a big power. Those are the major players here. We'll talk about Assyria in a minute. Are you with me here? So as we think about this, we have Retzin of Syria, Minnesota, Iowa, and Pekah of Israel, Kansas, have allied together against Judah, Oklahoma. And there's a reason, for some reason, Ahaz said, I'm not joining you guys. You're putting together a coalition. We know from other evidences that Assyria, a growing empire, wanted to gain control of what's called the Levant, this area of, of the world that is the eastern part of the Mediterranean. And, uh, and the folks who live there don't want them because they're going to put them under the thumb of oppression. And so they want to gather together as many groups, like happened about 100 years before, where Phoenicia and Philistines and Syria and Israel and Judah all allied together in this battle against Assyria. And they kept them out of town. There was at least a draw, and they kept them out. So they're trying to do this again. But Ahaz is having none of it for some reason. We don't know exactly why. Seems to be maybe he's in bed with Assyria. He won't cooperate. So what's going on? They want to go get him, kill him, and put their guy on the throne, the son of Tabil. We'll read about that later. And what's the big deal about that? Who cares? Ahaz is a loser, right? He's a bad king. Well, it represents the disruption of the line of David, the messianic line. So let's see how that goes. So the destructive plan of Ephraim and Samaria is verses 3 to 6. I, I, I want to labor this point only because how we interpret this passage in the end is connected to the historical, political context that the Bible gives us in this chapter. Verses 3 to 6. We have Isaiah with his son Sha'ar Yashuv. His name means a remnant will return. All these boys have some sign names, and that's kind of like a two-edged sword. A remnant will return. There will be survivors, but there will just be a remnant. So there's, there's danger. Go out to meet Ahaz, you and your son Shar Yashuv, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool, checking out some of the water sources before he expected a full-on frontal attack from Syria and Israel. And on the highway to the Fuller's Field, at the southern end of the city of David, is part of it at least, and say to him, take, so Isaiah is coming to Ahaz, say, cool your jets, take a chill pill, take care and be calm, because his heart is shaking like the trees in the wind. Have no fear, and don't be faint-hearted because of these two stubs of smoldering firebrands. 
I mean, they're not even on fire. They're like sticks you've taken out of the fire and they're kind of going out. Now, Ahaz would regard them quite differently from that description. On account of the fierce anger of Retz and Aram, the son of Remaliah. Because, and here's, here's the punchline here, verse 5. This is how he, he could not fear. Because Aram, with Ephraim, and the son of Remaliah, planned evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrorize it, make for yourselves a, ourselves a breach in its walls, and set up the new guy, the son of Tabil, as king in the midst of it. So the issue is ultimately not about Ahaz, but it's about the end, the potential end of the Davidic line. So God gets involved. So we have Yahweh's unmistakable promise in verses 7 to 9. Thus says the Lord God. The Lord, the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. God, the, well, it's really the Lord, the sovereign Lord. It shall not, this, this idea that their attempt to wipe out the Davidic line, it shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. Kind of a double negative statement. Won't happen. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Retzin. And within 65 years, both of them are going to be no longer a people. Shattered. Verse, end of verse 9. If you will not believe you yourself surely shall not last. So the Lord, through Isaiah, comes to Ahaz, who is terrified, and he knows he's the one they're trying to get rid of, but it's not about him. It's about the Davidic line. And the Lord is saying, God speaking, it will not happen. So there's that first section, verses 1 to 9, where we have, will you believe? God's promise should have been like, yes, I'll trust that. But we'll see that's not the case. We have the sign of Emmanuel, verses 10 to 17. And the Lord has spoken again to Ahaz, obviously has spoken to him before, saying, ask, for a, ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God, a sign that would confirm that this would happen, to encourage him, something, and it, it could be as carte blanche, make it as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. Whatever you want to have as a sign, I'll bring it to pass, just to demonstrate that the, the God of all power is going to make all this happen. Well, what does Isaiah, Ahaz do? He refuses. Therefore, it says in verse 12, Ahaz, but Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I nor will I test the Lord. Kind of a pious, empty answer. From other indications, it seems that he'd already made his mind up. He's going to get help elsewhere. Assyria, you know, Minnesota, Iowa. He's going to send them money to have them come and attack Syria in the northern kingdom, Israel, to get them off his back. He would rather turn to a, turn to a pagan nation to give him relief rather than to trust the almighty, powerful, one and only God of the, of the universe and Israel's God. Oswald, one commentator, wrote, when we cannot trust God, it suddenly makes good sense to trust our worst enemy. 
Or John Wesley wrote, if a man will not believe God, he will believe anything. That's what Ahaz is doing. So remember, the threat is to the Davidic dynasty. The enemy is camped a day's march away. Ahaz turns to a pagan king rather than the all-powerful God. And the choice, we'll, we'll see if we were to keep going in history, the, the choice will result in a hundred years of bondage to Assyria. It's not going to go well for Ahaz and Judah. So he says, no thanks, I don't want your sign. He will not believe. And then the Lord says, well, I'm going to give you one anyway. Because I want you to know that what's about to happen is what God will orchestrate. Because he is going to protect the Davidic dynasty. Verses 13 and 14. Then he said, listen now, house of David, is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men? You need to try the patience of my God as well. I mean, you've done enough of testing the patience of men. You're trying this out with me now? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be a child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. He will eat courage and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. Now I want you to hang with me here, because this may not be the normal interpretation that some of you might be thinking of here, so don't walk out of me, okay? I, I think you're going to be content with where I end up. I, uh, after rebuking Ahaz, he announces this sign. The virgin will conceive, have a son, Name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's the punchline, if you will, that God is an act to help God's people learn chant. He is with them in bringing the end of this threat to the Davidic dynasty. So the, the, big, the big question is, is, who is the one that's born? Now, I understand that we're going to get to Matthew 1, and I'm, I'm all for Jesus being a fulfillment of this prophecy, because Matthew 1. But I, I'm suggesting to you that this has to be, because before I look at any more at chapter 14, again, look at, look at verse 14. You have, it says, have a son. She will be with child. Bear a son. She's going to name Emmanuel. Verse 15, write the next verse. He, who's that referring to? Well, the son and the child, right? He'll eat courage and honey at the time. He... That child knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy, the one in 14, will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, what's going to happen? The land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. I mean, there are abundant anchor points to connect, number one, the child born in verse 14 with the he, the he, the son, the boy who is going to get to a certain age, fairly young age, and by that time, that whole international political situation is going to be exploded. It could be gone. Because God is going to intervene on behalf of his people and guard the Davidic dynasty for his glory. So as a result of that, I mean, I, I would translate this virgin. I, I, I'm, I'm, if you want to talk to me later about it, I'll, I can unpack that. But I'm trying to make sure God is at the center of attention here because I do believe in Matthew 1, 21 to 23, my Matthew writes, so she will bear a son, she'll call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place 
to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And what I'm suggesting here is that Matthew draws upon the God-given pattern of realities in Isaiah 7, in a certain concrete international political context with a threat against the Davidic monarchy. Matthew draws, guided by the Spirit, he draws on the pattern found in Isaiah 7, uses a narrow word for virgin. I would translate the word virgin, translate the word virgin in Isaiah 7. It can mean that. But in, in, in Matthew 1, is a, a total, absolutely crystal clear word for a virgin. The one in Isaiah 7 could be marital, woman of marriageable age or whatever. And he's, he's nailing it with clarity in Matthew 1 because it applies to Jesus. And the unique virgin birth of Jesus, where Mary gives birth to a child as a virgin, only time that's ever happened. So he points to a later fulfillment of God's provision of an Emmanuel, God with us, child. In the, in the Davidic monarchy, is not under threat at this point in time, but this is the culmination of God bringing the he in human flesh as part of the next step in his plan to bring his plan for the universe into completion. All right, so there are details there, but 55 minutes or whatever, seven chapters, I can't nail all those down. Any of those hard questions, ask one of the seminary students. And they can answer. <laughs> no, if you want to talk, we can talk. All right, so that's Isaiah 7. The issue is, is God with us, both near and far. And then what we have next is the, the second chapter, Royal Hope, Isaiah 9, 1 to 7. Now, this passage describes a future day. It's also connected to, sorry, I don't want that. Um, he, he's, driving, he's describing a future day connected to the arrival of the promised Messiah, the one in Matthew 1. Isaiah 7 is introducing something important here. We have a unique historical political situation where the Davidic dynasty is threatened. You have the intervention of God in human history to orchestrate the birth of this child who would be a sign child. How that could be, we can talk about later. There's going to be a sign child in that situation to help them understand that this isn't the, the happenstance of politics. This is the intervention of God in human history to guard the Davidic dynasty and to bring his plan to the next step toward the coming of the Messiah. Now, verse 9, we're going to see a future day that is building on that reality that God is a God who's committed to bring his plan to pass, then comes to that sign child in Matthew 1, chapter 9. And then the other thing I want you to realize, too, is in chapter 8, you can read it some other time, smoke is rising off of that page. Because remember, he has the foolish decision he made, instead of trusting that God would bring it to pass, what did he do? He sent tribute money to Assyria, a guy named Tiglath Pelesha III, the king, to come and attack Syrian, the northern kingdom, to get them off of his back. And he does that. He just devastates Damascus. Syria's gone. And he whittles the northern kingdom down to a little bit of land around the city of Samaria. Devastates them. It's like smoke rising off the page. Dark, a dark day. And he, the prophet here, as I said he would do, 
He contrasts the bad news of the consequence of Ahaz's decision in the judgment of God with the good news of the passage here in chapter 9. At the end of chapter 8, he, he talks about some other things, but look at verse 1 of chapter 9. But there will be no more gloom for who was in anguish, pointing back to chapter 8 with the judgment that God brought on in the wake of his resolution to that eternal, that, that, that international situation. But there are consequences, because when Assyria came to relieve Ahaz's situation, Assyria took the opportunity to subjugate the southern kingdom for the next hundred years. So there will be no more gloom. There's good news here for her in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. Later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Verse 2, if you read the end of verse 8, it's darkness. That word is used for chapter 8. The judgment experienced from the Assyrians in the wake of what happened in chapter 7, darkness. But notice verse 2, the people who walk in darkness thinking about the historical circumstance, but even bigger than that, hard-hearted, not wanting to depend on the Lord in general, the people, Galilee of the Gentiles, Zebulon, Naphtali, the ones who were crunched first in Israel by the Assyrians and by others after that. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. So there's good news coming. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation, you shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest. As men rejoice when they divide the spoil. Now, I'm gonna, let me just jump in here with that. There's more to say. You can jot down maybe Matthew 4, 12 to 16. That is the passage that quotes from those very verses and sees them being fulfilled initially in the coming of Christ in his first coming where he's going to bring light to a dark place. But I also want you to notice in your notes you have letter B, letter A is light will come to those living in darkness. Letter B, God will defeat the nation's oppressor and end all war. So the promised Messiah will bring joy and prosperity, blessing. What I just had read to you or all these things that are used to characterize the blessing and the joy, Pastor Tom talked about this morning, that the Lord will bring. And, and so Oswald, another a commentary, says this, instead of depopulation and dwindling away in chapter 7, the nation swells and grows in 49. Instead of the harvest being meager, it's abundant. Instead of being the spoil themselves, they'll divide the spoil. So he's talking about you shall multiply, you shall increase their gladness, they'll be glad in your presence, as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. There's going to, there's going to be excitement because of the work of God to bring light to his people. And even militarily, war will cease. You should break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, talking probably back to the Assyrian burden that the passage would have connoted, but in general, all of the oppressiveness of sin and rotten choices being scattered throughout the world through their hardness of heart. That'll break the yoke of their burden, the staff of their on their shoulders. He refers to Gideon and his victory over Midian. 
the rod of the oppressor, as at the Battle of Midian. And even the material of war will be burned. The boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult, the cloak rolled in blood, will be for the burning, fuel for the fire. He's saying the day is coming. Instead of oppression by Gentile nations, instead of all the agonies that go with that, there's a day coming when there's one who will bring peace, genuine, lasting peace. Verses 6 to 7, the ultimate and eternal peace will finally come with the righteous reign of the Messiah. So we have this, the great joy that is, and this is the greatest cause of joy. It isn't just all the things like harvest and no more oppressors. No, verse 6 and 7 is the greatest third category of causing joy, and that is the provision of the Messiah. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. There will be a child born, Matthew 1. Jesus taken on human flesh, the God-man. But it doesn't stop at verse 6. We're going to have a child born. The, the fulfillment, the consummation, if you will, of this promised son. This God with us. And, and, and the next step in God's plan to bring his plan for the world to pass by providing the, the Messiah. But then it jumps right ahead to the government will rest on his shoulders. He's going to rule. Remember the, all the stuff, scepter will not depart on Judah, Davidic covenant. Uh, Psalm 72, we talked about this ideal Davidic king. God's plan is this, is this Messiah will rule. He'll establish a kingdom over the earth for his glory. And then he gives us these names and, you know, just a sermon on Isaiah 9 is needed. But his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There'll be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom. So this Messiah will be an unparalleled king. Government will rest on his shoulders and anticipate the future rule of the Messiah. Wonderful counselor, literally wonder of a counselor. This, the idea is this counselor is going to make whatever decision is needed, be the most capable leader anybody has ever known. Some, some really good leaders, but this one is a su- superb leader. He's wonderful counselor, the one who does amazing things. He's all-knowing and all-wise. Mighty God, he would possess all the power of God. Various passages I can't give you right now, but it talks about mighty God, this very expression referring to Yahweh. And in the New Testament, you find out that all these things that Yahweh did in the Old Testament were Jesus. Second person of the Trinity, God was in heaven kind of directing things, but Jesus is the one. And so there, we're learning here, and then whether, whether the folks in Isaiah's day had all comprehended all of this, I think there was a head-scratcher. Uh, think about the apostles in the New Testament. When did they figure out the God-man thing? I mean, it takes a while, right? It's, it's a can't, think about us with the Trinity. I believe it with all my heart. Tell your kids about it. How does that work? I mean, you want to, right? The point is, we struggle with the Trinity in explaining it and understanding it fully because we have no analogy to compare it to. Same with the God-man. So I'm not saying there's a total comprehension. Yeah, gee, this, this Messiah is going to be the God-man, but he was going to be the best of the best, unlike any ruler they've seen. All that God is and all that God 
does is at his disposal. The promised son who will be the ultimate ruler over the entire earth will be enabled by God himself in a way that's unparalleled. Eternal Father, his uh, rule here is going to be forever unending. Everybody else died, but this one is going to last. Prince of Peace. He'll be a prince who brings peace, genuine, eternal, significant peace. And then the Messiah will reign over the entire world in perfect justice and righteousness, verse 7. There'll be no end to the increase of his government or peace on the throne of David or over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on, forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Now, again, lots of things to say here, but when, when, when God gave the Mosaic law to his people, there are kind of two dimensions of the Mosaic law, horizontal dimension laws and vertical dimension laws. The ones that are vertical kind of govern sacrifice and consecration of priests and, and, and things more directly related to a person or the nation's relationship with God. All, the, the majority of the rules are horizontal dimension laws that are how do you deal with other people. And if you were to look at those horizontal dimension laws, there are two categories of virtues that come to the, come to the top through what those require. Two of the, here's one, kindness, compassion, and the other one, justice, righteousness, equity. Why am I telling you all of this? I'm not trying to fill time because I don't know what else to say. I, I want you to realize that when the Lord calls us, them, Israel in the Old Testament, us today to live according to his commandments and to, to, not, to, to listen to his prohibitions, he wants us to live in that way so we can put him on display and those same truths are going to be the result of us obeying what God says and avoiding the prohibition because those are categories that are countercultural, radically different than the world around us. Kindness, compassion, dog eat dog world, a me first world, righteousness, equity, justice, defined by God, not politically, all the junk in the last few years, social justice, distractions. Social justice defined biblically is totally right. My point is, is Jesus, in that ruling position, will do what has never happened yet. Perfectly defined. Rule of justice and righteousness. We'll talk more about that. All right, next chapter, chapter 11. The culminating Davidic king... will reign over the entire world, characterized by stability and peace. And once again, what do you think happened in chapter 10? Yeah, you got it. Remember big K, little K? Frail kingdoms of mankind, the totally solid kingdom of God. Chapter 10 is another example of a different Assyrian king, this one Sennacherib, who's gonna come and crunch God's people, but he doesn't make it out with all he wanted. He destroys 46 fortified city in Judah. Lachish was the biggest one that he defeated. Comes to Jerusalem. And one morning, 185,000 soldiers didn't wake up. And he goes home with his tail between his legs. As far as I know, Assyrian history, this is the only campaign 
against the capital city of a foreign power that he didn't win. The only time. So there's good news in chapter 10, but there's bad news too. It's, it's like a lawnmower in a forest. He chopped down a ton of trees. So chapter 11, verse 1, there's a stump of Jesse left. Then a shoot will spring forth from the stem. Uh, the word is stump. Think of all those trees just chopped down in Montana where my wife grew up and I spent a lot of time. They called it a clear cut where they would just chop down every tree and you just see a whole hillside of stumps. But out of one of those stumps, the devastation of conquest by Assyria, yeah, here, there's that sprout, there's that little tree coming out. His judgment of his people, totally appropriate, is not the end of God's story for his people. Do you think I'm trying to get you to remember that? Because <laughs> all throughout life, we can be confident that God's going to bring his plan to pass. So we have chapter 10 there, and he, the, what, what God did against Sennacher was divine deliverance for his glory. Through the stump of Jesse, the Lord will bring forth a messianic king of David that a shoot will spring from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. There's going to be a shoot, there's going to be a branch, and there's going to be fruit. That branch will be empowered and equipped by the Holy Spirit. Verses 2 to the first part of 3, Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. Spirit of wisdom and understanding, counsel, strength, knowledge, fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Uh, can't go down this road far, but... Throughout the Old Testament, there's the giving of the Spirit on theocratic rulers. You know, I'm Joshua, I'm Moses, Joshua, the judges, kings, Jesus, when he's baptized, the Spirit comes in him. I think that's the same kind of anointing to enable leaders to rule in ways they couldn't on their own. But the point is here that he'll be, he'll be Spirit-enabled. He'll delight in the fear of the Lord. He'll follow God's guidelines, and his character will be his guide. He'll be perfect. And then he's going to rule. What about his rule? Verses 3 to 5. He will not judge by what his, what his eyes see, nor by a decision by what his ears hear. That's often what happens. Wet my finger, see where the wind's blowing. Okay, I'm going to make my decision. No, it's going to be based on God's character. The fear of the Lord will guide him. But with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness the afflicted of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Also righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist. We've never seen that. Now, we've had good rulers along the way, but nobody measures up to this. And, you know, but by the way, when he, when, he, when he focuses on the poor and the needy, the right with righteousness, he will judge the poor, decide, decide with fairness, the afflicted of the earth. This is not social gospel in the sense that everything we need to do has to be, you know, food pantries and giveaway meals, and there, there's a place for that. It's another conversation. What he does is he, he wants us to realize, because in the prophets, 
when, when Israel, when, like Isaiah, indicts the, the nation of Israel for their covenant treachery, one of the things they point out, it isn't you're eating the wrong kind of food, it isn't you're, you're, doing, you're breaking this law, it's what have you done with the, with, the, with the poor and the needy and the widows and the orphans? Why is that? Because the way we treat those who are needy is a barometer of our heart. Are we wanting to show who God is just to people who are like us? Just to people who are comfortable? Are we burdened to show righteousness and justice and equity and kindness and compassion to them as well? That's a whole other subject, and I, 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 think, I think about that, but I, I just want you to see that this is not a social gospel reality. It helps us understand how righteousness and justice shows up. That's an area where it happens. He's amazing as the God who does that perfectly. And then his rule will be characterized by an unprecedented period of peace and tranquility, verses 6 to 9. Now, all of this, we have, we have safety and security would result in the king's rule, these conditions of peace, no enmity between animals, between men and animals, between men. The wolf will dwell with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the young goat, the calf with the young lion, the fatling all together. So animals that were at each other's throats. It's, it's, it's used to describe peace. A little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze, and the young will lie down together. The lion will eat the straw, eat straw like an ox. The nursing child will play with the hole of the cobra. The weaned child will put his hand in the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord, and as waters cover the sea. The point of the, the, these descriptions is to help us have a, a concrete idea of peace that's thoroughgoing. Right? And these are categories. There are all kinds of details you could fill in, pages and pages of examples of animosity. But again, have we ever seen that? No, this is unparalleled. This promised messianic figure will not only rule with justice and righteousness, but for the first time he will introduce genuine, lasting peace into a dark world. He'll be one for whom his people's welfare is uppermost. He'll be one who rules as a servant, not because he is too weak to dominate, but because he's strong enough not to need to crush, because he, we'll see later on, he doesn't, snuff out the smoldering wick. He doesn't just break the cracked reed. No, it's, he's, he's amazing. Now, again, we're going we're gonna to go on to Isaiah 35 here, and part of what I want you to get from this is to revel in who the suffering, the, the servant, the, the Messiah, the one who, will, who has died to provide us salvation from sin, what a blessing that is, and what a joy it is to be counted as one of his children. To have that truth resonate in our heart on a daily basis, I'm thinking about it as a husband and a dad, as I think about the truth of the gospel and the life-transforming power of it, and this awesome God that I have a relationship with to help me to love my wife in a way that she understands God better, to help my kids and my grandkids see that loving the Lord and living a life where I embrace it, what he wants is always best is valuable, where my burden for the world shows up and how we engage that lost world. So this isn't just about Isaiah, it's about this awesome God 
who brings his plan to pass that we can count on, who has, has brought his Messiah, predicted here, that should be life-changing each day. I just want to make sure you got my heart. This wasn't just about stuff. Number four, Isaiah 35. I don't normally use my phone, but I didn't bring a ton with me, so let me go ahead and go to... Sorry. Isaiah 35. So, short version here. Um, So, Isaiah 1 to 12, we've talked about to some degree. 13 to 23, as, as God expects... Jude and Jerusalem to have a dependent relationship on him, and if they don't, they'll be judged. He applies the same measuring rod to all the nations of the earth, and 13 to 23 goes through a number of Gentile nations who is going to judge because they too don't have a dependence on him. And then you have 24 to 27, a unique called the Little Apocalypse. It's kind of like a big picture description with, you know, boom, bang, and, you know, stuff in heaven happening where God wins. It's very, very gripping and convincing. And then in 28 to 35, the Lord returns to remind God's people, this is his covenant nation who have a penchant to disobey him, to commit covenant treachery, where he, he, he and in his chapters, he brings again the promise of covenant judgment and hard issues that they're manifesting. But at the end of that section is a unique Two chapters, 34 and 35, that look forward to, I would say, an eschatological period. Chapter 34 is picturing an oasis turning to a desert, wilderness, sand, no water, horrible place to be. That's, I would liken to the tribulation. 35, the desert turned to an oasis, millennium, where the anointed one, the Messiah, will be. And what I want you to see is, and I, I give some of that here in the, in the notes, a striking contrast between oasis to desert, then desert to oasis. And, um, and then I have some things in the notes here. I want you to turn to that box where, where I have 35, 4, and 6. The prophet uses four word pictures to depict the glories and the blessings of this future time of salvation. Are you with me? You asked that question, two of you said yes, I'm thankful. I tell my students with yes, no questions from a teacher, just that highly energy demanding nodding of your head is helpful. Are you with me? Okay, there you go. All right, so otherwise, are you with me? I mean, it's like, uh, you, what do you think about lunch or are you with me? Sorry, thank you. It's, it helps me. It's encouraging. All right, so I want you to look at the, the things that are in italics. When I'm in Israel and we're riding through the land, I want them to see this. So, these would have been features to help identify this messianic age and the messianic individual. So who does this make you think of? Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf will be unstopped, the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of mute will shout, will shout for joy. Uh, Jesus? <laughs> right? And so in his first coming, even though that's not the culmination of his plan and the establishment of his kingdom, the first and second comings weren't obvious in the Old Testament. This still is a, kind of an already, and there's a not yet. There's, it's an installment with Jesus came as a Messiah. And so when he's doing this, it's a, it should have been a foretaste of that messianic age. Yes, he's here. Okay, we, some of those other things didn't happen that disciples were hoping for, and they had to learn that lesson. But this is a passage... If a person, if a, if a Jew is, and for us too, if we're reading this, 
connecting the dots. Yeah, he's, he's not just a prophet. He's not just a teacher. No, he's the, the anointed one. And so that's another step forward, right? He's, he's introduced here. And we know that from other passages like Isaiah 61 and some others that there's two comings. And this is to provide what we'll talk about in a moment in Isaiah 53. And, but the, the fully consummated arrival of Jesus is yet to come. That will bring in a messianic age throughout the world. That's 1 to 39. Uh, 40 to 66, three passages. And I'll just do a few verses out of each one of these. One, he will epitomize justice and compassion. We talked about the Mosaic Law, those horizontal dimension laws that how do you deal with other people? What are the two sets of truths that kind of rise to the top if you boiled them and these would be the cream that comes to the top? It's kindness and compassion. It's justice, equity, righteousness. And those are those aspects of God's character that you can live out in a way that is radically different than the world around us. That's called light in a dark world. That's don't be conformed to the ways of this world. It's to live not with the American dream, but by God's agenda. All right, so here's in verses 2 to 4 in Isaiah 42. I'm going to read, He will epitomize justice and compassion. He will not cry out or shout, make his voice heard in the streets. It's not about him. It isn't ostentatious. Now, obviously he's going to draw attention as the Messiah, but you've been around people like that once in a while who the first words aren't who I am, what I do. It's all about me. They're servants. They're kind. But this is in spades, if you will. And look at this kindness, this compassion. You will not break a bruised reed. And these are pictures to communicate something. You have a, a reed that's cracked, and it would be easy just to pop the thing. It's a hunk of junk anyway. Just, just break it. Well, no, no, this is value. He doesn't break a bruised or cracked reed to be weakened. He doesn't put out a smoldering wick. It, there's that wick that's kind of just flickering out and the smoke is starting to come above it. That doesn't mean you can't put out a smoldering wick and you can't crack, break a, a cracked stick. That's not the point. These are pictures to describe the Lord dealing with afflicted people, broken, cracked, challenged. He kind of pushes the flame to life. He tries to help strengthen the cracked reed. He's kindness and compassion. He will faithfully bring justice. He will not grow weak or discouraged until he has established justice on earth. The islands, the extremities of the world will wait for his instruction. Again, you, you can look back at Isaiah, Psalm 72 sometime. It's that ideal Davidic ruler, and it's the same thing. He's the paragon of rulers. And again, when you, when you think about the kings of Israel, and that's again one of those things where, oh, not him, not, not him. Jesus fills all of those spots. Justice and compassion. And then the second point, he will, Isaiah 49, he'll bring light 
to Israel and the world. In, in, in Isaiah 49, you have the prophet It's the second servant song, and he's talking about salvation, reaching to the ends of the earth. And he sees this one, this servant, this servant figure been called by the Lord, hidden for a time. And, and what the prophet writes is that the Lord has something bigger in mind than just the Jews, Israel. Now, it isn't like Jews think. I want to leave them behind because they're God's firstborn. He, it's saying that what God's plan for the world involved from the get-go, the world. Genesis 1, let us make mankind as our image according to our likeness and let them have dominion over Israel. And over the entire world. I mean, Abraham covenant. And you, all the families of the Grisanis. We'll be blessed. No, it's the world. So God is always interested in the world. His focus on Israel in the Old Testament is for a reason. He's going to work in them and through them, providing us most of our Bible and the Messiah and an example, both the good and the bad stuff, about who God is and what he does and what he expects. So verse 6, in the book of verse 8, he says, It is not enough for you to be my servant, Raising up the tribes of Jacob and restoring the protected ones of Israel. That's not bad. It isn't wrong for Jesus to have a ministry to his own people in the flesh as a Jew. But I will also make you a light for the nations. To be my salvation to the ends of the earth. And he goes on here and Verse 7, he talks about, Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to the despised one, to the one abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers. Kings will see and arise. Princes will also bow down because of the Lord who is faithful. The Holy One of Israel has chosen you. So there's going to be this despised section, but it'll turn to where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And then verse 8, Thus says the Lord, this is what the Lord says. In the favorable time I have answered you, in the day of salvation I have helped you, and I will keep you and give you for a covenant of the people to restore. And I think there's a both light of the nation's covenant of the people are, are two separate parts of his commission, but to restore the land to make them inherit the desolate heritages, to establish his kingdom over the entire world. Part of God's plan. Remember back to other passages. Sorry, I'm not sure what I just did. Other passages in the Old Testament that have paved the way for this. And all those, the bad news stories where God brings judgment against his people. It's not the end of a story, it's a means to an end. It's a an attempt by God to squeeze his people, to help them understand the emptiness, the dust and ashes of their chosen way, to help them remember that eternal truth is always best, which eternal is always ultimate. It should be always ultimate in their lives for Israel too. 
And so knowing that, repeatedly presented, that a compassionate, loving God who cares for his people, who wants to bring glory to himself through them, whether that happened in the Old Testament doesn't mean it isn't part of God's value system. Just to make sure we realize that we see all the bad news, it's like, let's not toss Old Testament to the garbage can because we learn a ton about who God is and what he wants. So we're not rejoicing in the failures of a nation of Israel that was composed of mostly unbelievers. There was a remnant, always a remnant. But we see in, in, in Isaiah 49 what the Lord is heading to again. We're seeing what's important to him. He has this servant who is despised by many, who will be a light for the nations to be my salvation to the ends of the earth. He will keep, I will keep you, he says, I will appoint you to be a covenant for the people to restore the land and make them possess the desolate inheritances. So we're seeing this theme return to again that God will establish his rule over the world through this promised one. It will will impact all of those that are believers at the end of the tribulation and then millennium goes forward. Let's go on to Isaiah 53. And, and, you know, when you think about Isaiah 52, verse 12 through 53, no, 13 through 53, 12, it's one of the servant songs, and it's the one that, in many ways, we spend the most time on. You have a, a servant. In light of Isaiah 53, we talk about the suffering servant. Before this, he's been a servant figure who is selected by God. He's enabled by the Spirit. He's prepared for the task. He is commissioned to impact his chosen people, to bring them to salvation, to be a light to the nations. And, and this, was a tough, this is a tough one. Where the prophet, in verse 1, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So for he is all referring to this servant. He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of a parched ground, no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him. No appearance that we should be attracted to him. It's not about him. It isn't that he was a hunk or he was just handsome or whatever. It's he's a God-chosen one. He was despised and forsaken of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But it wasn't just affliction on its own. Verse 5, he was pierced through. For our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being. 
our peace fell on him. And by a scourging, and not the scourging alone is part of this whole redemptive act, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us turned to his own way. The Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and a sheep that is silent before its shearers, he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and for his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom was the stroke due. It was there the ones that should have died, like us, assigned in a grave with the wicked men, no deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offering, he will prolong his days. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper his hand as a result of the anguish of his soul He will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. He will bear their iniquities. Therefore I will allow them a portion with the great. He will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. He will die for the sins of his people. There are all kinds of other parts of the ultimate consummation of God's plan for the world. I mean, this is at the core of all of that. It's before some of those consummation events happen in an established kingdom on earth. Remember back to Genesis 3, in the wake of Adam and Eve's sin and the curse on the participants and the Lord talked about not just pain and childbirth for the woman and other things, but she would have a seed. And that seed would one day come. He would crush the head of the serpent, his heel would be crushed. He would bring resolution to the sin problem introduced there in Genesis 3 through Adam and Eve's sin. And this is as painful as it is to think about my sin, born by him, without guilt. I'm pumped, right? <laughs> Hope you are too. This is, this is just grounds for unending rejoicing because Isaiah 53 is connecting the promised ruler as the culmination of God's plan for the world with the resolution of the biggest need ever, humanity's sin problem. And so when we think about things here in Isaiah, Isaiah 53, I'll pray at the end, but I just... Don't let the business of life and the challenges of life just the hard things of life at times. Get your eyes off of this truth. In summary, let me just make some points that will answer that question. How does the book of Isaiah help us understand the coming 
of the promised one, the Messiah, in life. Well, Isaiah 7, Matthew 1, in the time of trouble, God is with us. God intervenes in human history to make sure his plan comes to pass. There is no enemy that wins in the ultimate sense. He's a God who's faithful, brings his plan to his end. Even when, whether it's politics or world affairs, seem to appear like the, the world's just out of control. No. Even though we don't have all the why, answers to the why questions, we can be encouraged that there's a God who's in control. God is with us. Matthew 9, a son is born and the promised king will rule perfectly. And that's going to happen. He's been born and he will rule in the millennium. Isaiah 11, the promised Messiah will bring perfect peace to earth. We look forward to that. Isaiah 35, the Messiah's conduct matches Isaiah's description of the promised one. It just is so encouraging to remind ourselves of that. When we read about Jesus' ministry on earth, yes, the promised Messiah is there. He's here, introduced. More to come. Isaiah 42 and 49, the promised servant Messiah will show us perfect justice and righteousness. And then Isaiah 53, this promised servant Messiah will do what the Bible looked forward to since Genesis 3, provide the possibility of an eternal resolution for our sin problem. I hope you're encouraged by that. We think about our, our God's greatness and what he's done on our behalf, and I've got to stop that, um, that truth should help us walk out that door, love our brothers and sisters in Christ, husbands, wives, our kids, a lost world around us, live as bright lights in a needy place, pursue righteousness and humility and dependence. May God help us to do that. I'll pray. Father, I'm just, uh, I feel dwarfed and humbled before this testimony of who you are and what you do and through the amazing character of the promised Messiah. Thank you for what he's done in my life and the brothers and sisters in Christ around me. I pray you'd help me, help us to keep our eyes on who you are and what you do. To be reminded that you are the faithful, loving, caring God who brings his plan to pass. You are totally reliable and you provide the strength we need. And I pray that our impact on this world will be enhanced as we keep our eyes on you. Remind ourselves of truths like this because we don't have what it takes on our own to live the kind of a life you set before us. So I do pray by your spirit that you would help us to be and do so much more than we could be and do on our own. We'll trust you for that in Jesus' name, amen.